night. Really good stuff. Uh, it's about uh, faith versus works. And I remember as an adolescent, you know, my heart is so tuned into God and I'm chasing hard after him. I am uh, the best way to describe Chris Perry at 16 is ignorance on fire. That is the you get that concept. You get me. I'm on fire, passionate, devoted, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So when it came to doctrine, I was fascinated. And then, you know, that someone said, you know, are we saved by works or saved by grace? And I'm like, I don't know, but I want to know. And so I began to dig into James and it really kind of shook me up on what James is saying. So let's dig in and see what's going on. I'm going to pray. Abba, Father, thank you for the love and the grace that you give us. Thank you that faith, hope, and love are real. And I confess great need of you in, in every sense. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, Janice. I thought you'd be dropping grapes in Bruce's mouth and there'd be big leaves. Well, that was, well, still, but I mean, it's like a three-day event for Bruce, you know, so. Um, all right, James chapter 2. We're going to focus on uh, works versus faith and how that plays out. And I want to kind of set the scene again. Uh, we almost can miss this. Uh, the word, the Lord's Supper, and the word Eucharist is not found in the letter to James, but it's hinted at. For example, uh, when you read 1 to 7, it describes when someone comes into your assembly. Assembly. That is code language or a descriptor for what would be considered a typical worship service. You're just having a church service. Okay? Church. And it says someone comes in to your church service with a gold ring and dressed in bright colored clothes. And a poor man comes in and he's dressed in dirty clothes. And at this moment, now remember, this is, this is James, the, the baby brother to Jesus, writing to Jewish Christians who have scattered out throughout uh, uh, the Greco-Roman world that is around Judea, North Syria, and into potentially into Greek territory, all right? The farther you go north, the less Jewish it gets. The closer you get to Jerusalem, the more Jewish it gets, right? Kind of common sense. The closer you get to Rome, the more Italian it gets. Think of it that way. Um, so, so this is a service where favoritism is taking place. The rich man gets the seat of preference. The poor man gets a dishonorable seat, even to the point of getting to sit on a footstool, not even a chair, but a footstool. So James is using language to say, we're really kind of shaming the poor man is what this is, right? And look what, look what James says at verse six, you are dishonoring the poor man, okay? That is essentially the identical idea that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11. How can we do the Lord's Supper, which is the agape feast? It epitomizes mercy, love, acceptance, and show distinctions at the same time. You can't. And that is why 1 Corinthians 11 is a blistering corrective to the Corinthian church that was abusing the Lord's Supper. And the poor who perhaps couldn't get off work uh, 
because of just literally the working. They couldn't get off work in time. Or they could get off work in time for the service, but they didn't have any food at home to bring to the potluck. Okay? And so they're, e- they're either denied food at the door and they're forced to wait, watching the people that were wealthy bring in large amounts of food and wine and just really stuff themselves. And then, there's, and then potentially there's wine and bread, the Eucharist elements, saved, and they're allowed in at the end. So this is a part of what is potentially going on at Corinth. But James use, uses almost identical language. These churches, and there's 12 of them, the 12 tribes spread about. He's, he's talking to a lot of people. You're abusing the poor. You're playing favorites, which is exactly the condemnation of, of 1 Corinthians 11. Okay? Sets a scene. And so that being the kind of the framework, the stuff that you're going to look at now is in the middle of that frame. Okay? So here we go. Uh, James 2, 8 to 13. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, you know, Torah, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, great. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. And then he introduces this idea. Whoever keeps the whole law. How many laws are there in Torah? 613. If you keep all 613 laws and you stumble in one, so you've kept 612, the moral outcome is that you're guilty of all. Absolutely guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom meaning we are free to do what is right, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Fascinating. Does that sound like something his big brother said about judgment and mercy? What does it sound like, Lisa? Remember, do not judge so that you're not judged, is what he's saying, okay? So, put that in the framework of the Lord's Supper okay rich man comes in he gets the best seat poor man comes in he gets the lowest seat or even a stool and he gets the poorest of the food choices and Paul and James is going hey how why are you showing favoritism don't you understand that we're essentially saying we're all guilty that's what he's saying we're all guilty so all right so here's a couple scriptures that relate to that Romans 2 1 2 I know you're very familiar with that Uh, Therefore, you have no excuse, you foolish person, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that the matter in which you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and you know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Again, that's that's such similar language to what James is saying. You want to be a person who has no mercy? Okay. When it's your turn, it's going to be merciless. What do you want? You know, this is essentially what's being said. And then Matthew 5, I just mentioned it. Do not judge so that you're not judged. For the standard, the same way you judge will be judged. And by your standard of measure will be judged to you. So why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, your sister, 
Let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Real quick, check in. Uh, for those of you who know a little bit of command of Greek, what's unique about the word hypocrite? What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Any recall on Greek theater, the Greek play, entertainment, a Greek theater? Yep, Tammy nails it. It literally means to have two faces is what it means. Yeah, so in other words, you may have, in the, the play may have eight characters, and you only have five actors. And so the actors will wear a mask with certain colors and expression on this, and they're playing the part. And then when it's time to switch the role, they just turn it around, they become a different person. And it's two-facedness, and that's at, right out of Greek theater. And so essentially, practically, it means you, know, you act one way in one situation, you know, and then you act a different way in church. That's kind of like, you know, we all say, oh, we love each other in church. Yay, we love Jesus. Yay. And then when you're outside the church, you ignore each other or you stab each other in the back or something. Paul would say, Jesus would say, we're being hypocrites. You know, if the love that we say we have here is genuine, then it's expressed genuinely outside these walls. So, okay. Uh, now, James 2, 14 to 17. So, Now he's kicking it in gear. Now we're going to talk about faith and works. So what use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, there's your cue to remember the Lord's Supper, and one of you says to them, uh, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? So in the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So pause there for you to wrestle with the theological issue here. If a man says he has faith, but has no works, can that faith save him? There's the question. And I lay it at your feet. That's what, that was the wrecking ball that went through my head when I, when I was about 16. What do you think? I think it's more effective if you do what is, well, like what is commanded. That means you have the Holy Spirit in your heart. That means you do have faith. But if you're just going with emotions and not acting it out. Right. It's not the words that are saving, but it's a reflection. It's showing what is in your heart. Okay. Okay, good. Good. So David's talking about heart attitude. I like that. What else? Faith without works. Is that legit? And can that result in salvation? Is the question. What do you think, Phyllis? Interesting. Okay, good. Good. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Somebody else? What's the solution?
Uh, okay, good, yeah. So the proof of your faith is, comes out in works because you have things that are alive, they move, they change, they grow. Right. And people who are spiritually alive will do works. That's really good. So remember, uh, Michelle, when Jesus said, who takes a, a lamp and puts it under a bushel basket? You know, or who takes a candle and puts it under the bed or something? Yeah. So that's good. Anybody else? How do you reconcile faith with that works is dead? Being by itself. Okay. James uh, or Tony, you're grinning. You're thinking. What you thinking? What's that, sir? Yeah. What's the answer? Can that faith save him? You have faith. Oh, I believe in Jesus. But you have no works. I don't think so. Okay, good. So we have a split right now. Phyllis says yes, and Tony says no. No. (laughs) We're having fun. We're having fun here. What do you think? What does it mean? Say anything. Say anything. But the most important thing, I believe, what God is looking at, is good to have faith, but you got to have the works. Something's got to happen. There's got to be works. I'm intentionally pushing you. I want you to think. I'm I'm creating pressure. Phyllis is going, no. Oh, that's good. That's very good. I'm not saying no works. I'm just saying works aren't necessary. Okay, good. If you love God, you'll do works. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessary to get to heaven. Yeah. Ah, okay, that's good. Anybody else? (laughs) I mean, God's not a liar. There you go. And there cannot be contradictions. You know, they'll give you eternal life. Can't be contradictions. There you go. You ready? Here we go. Here's the answer. Check out 18 to 26. <laughs> Look at this. So now, now, this is like the answer to the question. Well, someone might say, oh, really? Well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you first person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? (laughs) (laughs) Boom! (laughs) You see that faith was working in his works. And as a result of the works, faith was made complete or perfected. Tell you us. Ah, that's good. So the question, so can you have faith in no works? So really the answer is no, because if you have real faith, you will have works that give evidence. Oh, I like that. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that, Phyllis. I'm glad you're on it. That's so good. Um, So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, uh, and Abraham believed God, just just says believed, believed God, and it was credited to him, that's an accounting term, as righteousness. It moved from the debit to the credit column. And he was called a friend of God. 
So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh oh. In the same way was Rahab. Now, who's Rahab? Remember the prostitute and Joshua and the guys? Okay, was not justified by works. Or in the same way was Rahab the prostitute, not justified by works. Also, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Tammy, what do you think? <laughs> there you go. That's good, Tony. A, a person who just gave their life to Christ by faith, but they don't have any works, and they pass away, they go to heaven. Right. Yes, oh, that's, good, Tony. that's good, Tony. That's good, Tony. Check this out. Let's go a little deeper. This is Romans 3. Now, now Phyllis, you're going to love this part. <laughs> okay. now, so where then is boasting? It has been excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by, pay, by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. It's the same God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, I now live in the flesh, in the tent of this body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Make sense? It, it really actually says, just like what Phyllis was saying, yeah, you can have faith and not have shown by works, but your life will be so miserable. Uh, you will be a bitter person. Even though you believe in Christ, your human side still will be bitter. You'll still be bitter like that, even though you know Christ, because you're, you're, you're just like what Paul says, you're doing the things you don't want to do. Right. And you're not doing the things that you want to, and right. you actually become bitter something. because of yourself. Yeah, that's so good. All right. How do we interpret this? And by the way, interpreting Scripture can be a pretty, pretty tough job, okay? Sometimes it seems easy for God to love the world. Got it. You know, easy enough. But there's things like this that are really kind of hard to get our minds around sometimes. What's, if you get this one idea, and I'm intentionally teasing you along here to create pressure, we're missing something. But if you get this one idea, it unlocks it so that Paul and James are not in opposition. In fact, the two guys are actually in perfect agreement, but they're coming at something from two different perspectives. What is that thing? One is the Jew, Jew way of thinking, the other one is the Gentile way of thinking. Good. No. Another one. What's the other one? Tammy. Uh, Amy. Salvation versus sanctification. Yes. Bingo. There it is. 
So when you read James, is James addressing Christians? What does it say? But you, my brothers, it's in the text prior to, you, my brothers, this is insider information. He's identifying his family in Christ. And he's saying, look, if you're born again, if you're on the opposite side of salvation, you're now a disciple, you better have works. Okay, and if you don't, something's wrong. Something's bad wrong. Paul is coming on the other side. Paul is talking about the gospel. Paul is talking about conversion. We are not saved by works, Phyllis. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves works. It is the gift of God, so nobody can brag. Nobody has any works to say, hey, I, I had my quiet time more than you do, or did, or something, so I'm, I'm born. No. Pre-conversion. Paul, post-conversion, James. Now that you're born again, act like it. So James really pushing it. And if you call yourself a Christian and you've been born again, there better be works. Because if there's not, you've got a real problem. Make sense? Ah, whew, kind of scary there for a second, right? The, oh boy, we're all in trouble. I didn't have my quiet time this morning. I'm in trouble, so... Yeah, so this is where learning to handle Scripture well can really be comforting, okay? Now, if we try to take comfort that, that didn't apply to me, do you miss the point? If we're looking for something safe, we actually miss the point. Is James really trying to create pressure on the the 12 tribes, Christians dispersed abroad, the Greco? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is he attacking cheap faith, James? Yes. Is he attacking cheap works and hypocrisy? Yes. Where does it begin? At the Lord's Supper table. Cheap works expressed over who you invite to sit next to you at mealtime when a guest comes in. Oh, uh, oh, oh, man, tell you what. Hey, there's a footstool back here. Why don't you go sit there? Oh, well, hi, come on. Oh, my goodness, love the clothes. Great outfit. You sit up here. You know what you here. And that's called favoritism, which means hypocrites. Right? Remember the whole mercy thing? So if, uh, if Chris Perry can go, oh, yes, I have been given mercy. Oh, lucky me. You know, and then I, and then I come down like law and thunder and lightning. On everybody around me? Uh-oh. That's bad. So, so let's, let's not, I, I don't, now that you get that, I don't want you to miss kind of the blunt force of what Paul is saying to people who claim to be Christians. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? James is implying, is implying He's got a really messed up relationship with God. And he better get it, get it in gear, right? And we know that because if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, who comes to service, who comes to the Eucharist, and one of you says to them, uh, man, so glad you came. Uh, bless you. <laughs> I know it's cold outside. <laughs> Be warm. I know your belly's aching and empty. Come, we heard it grumbling in church. Be filled. 
enjoy the imaginary food we hope comes your way, uh, and yet you don't help him with it. James says, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Um, throw some weight at this. Uh, the demons, remember that one? I'm looking for it here. There you go. The demons. Why can I, why can I not find it? Who can see it? Did I miss it? 19. What's that? 19. 19. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what's powerful about that idea, I'm sorry, go back, um, is that demons have information. Demons know the gospel. Get your mind around that one. Demons know there's heaven. Demons know there's hell. And they know that Jesus is the savior of the world. <laughs> They have the facts of the gospel. You know, appreciate that. Can you imagine having the facts of the gospel and understanding the mystery of Jesus as the sacrificed lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Get your mind around that. That's, isn't that amazing? And they're even afraid of God. They shudder, you know, Mufasa. They shudder at the name of God or they shudder at the name of Jesus, right? They've got the data correct. They got the faith data straight. And they're not born again. Okay. So the argument is, there are people who can talk the talk, the data of the gospel, the information of the gospel, and identify Jesus. Oh, yeah, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, yes, 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 yes. But there's virtually no works. And James says... Not born again. That's one messed up dude. Lots of talk, no walk. Uh uh. Not born again. That's hard. That's hard. So, all right. What in the world does James chapter 2 have to do with us today? You're the church, you're the body of Christ. Uh, by the way, people listen. I just got a report today that there are people listening and, and God's using it. So, what you say is a part of that answer that's going out around central Arkansas and they're, they're letting me know, they're calling, hey, Chris, what was said at this service? Wow, I listened to it twice, you know, this kind of stuff. So you're part of that. This is not a one-voice church. You guys help share that. So what do you think? You're the body of Christ. How do we make practical application of James chapter 2 for our world today, us today?
Okay, let me back up and come at it another way. <laughs> Since you are guys, you're just so talkative tonight. It's amazing. Has James already identified, say in chapter one, works that are obvious in revealing faith? Are there any works in chapter one that go, wow, that gives evidence to faith? So go ahead and click over or turn over to James one. <clears throat> what are some works we Christians can do that prove our faith? I'm so sorry, Tammy, couldn't hear you. Yes. Yeah. Right. Or flip it rather and treat the ones in most need better than the ones. Yeah, actually, you're quoting Paul. You really are, uh, Tammy. And what's interesting, Tammy, this is, remember, this is kind of anchored. We don't, we don't appreciate this. It's anchored in a meal slash service. The earliest, earliest expression of church in the Pauline churches is a meal. Genesis, it's the big potluck we talked about. And during that meal, you integrate teaching, preaching, evangelism, spiritual gift sharing, uh, all, and all the gifts, as well as the Eucharist. Certain wine is set aside, bread is set aside to integrate into all of that the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So can you imagine having a meal, a worship service integrated with a meal? We kind of miss that, you know. Um, for us, the meal is once a quarter, once, you know, half a year or something like that, every other year, whatever. Uh, or even if it's on Sunday morning, like we did tonight, it's a little tag at the end. Even if we give significant emphasis to it, it's still an, an ending event as opposed to the central basis by which we all do church. It's very different. So therefore, Tammy, you're right. If the wealthy come in and are showed favoritism, that's hypocrisy. If the poor come in and they're ignored, that's hypocrisy. Uh, who was invited to Jesus' dinner table? The worst. <laughs> the worst kinds of people. The turncoats, the, uh, the traitors. They were known as publicans or tax collectors. And then you had the drunks and the, the prostitutes and all that stuff. So there's a great leveling. There's a great kind of egalitarian leveling. Um, Tony, racism is a serious matter in our culture today, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is, brother, right? And so one way we apply that to us today is skin color has nothing to do with it. Black is not better than white. White is not better than black. It's level. It's level ground. Makes sense? Okay. So one way we apply James 2 to us today is we confront any racial disparity. We learn to deal with it, and we learn to accept all people as they are for who they are, and we meet them at the table with grace. Quote, unquote, we break bread together. That's what that means. Make sense? Okay. Anything else? Any other works, whether it's in chapter 2 or chapter 1? That's assumed that we kind of do, you know. I'm going back to your first question. What we can do. 
Exactly. Yes. Yes. Did Jesus use any language kind of like that with any particular people in his circle? And who were they? Who were the fakes and the phonies? The, the Pharisees, yeah. You're, you're clean and pretty on the outside, but on the inside, very, very different. Yeah. David? It's also in the trials and temptations. Jesus also spent time in the same place that all the, the dregs of society was at. Yeah. did not partake in what they did. Yes. But he was there to talk to them. He was a part of the answer, not part of the problem. Right. <laughs> he wasn't drunk at the drinking party. Right. Exactly. And that is also a faith by works that if he can be there and not tempted by all the debauchery and, and, and drink, drunkenness and everything else, but he's there talking to them, not even moved by what's going on by there, except for the people that are there seeing the, the people that are lost. Yeah. That, that's also faith by works. Yeah, that's so good. How about this? Uh, in James chapter 1, uh, you're going to accept trials and testing of your faith as something from God and that it's creating endurance within you. Is that a work? Yeah. I have faith and the way I prove my faith by my works is that when I have a bad day, I don't blame my wife, kick the dog, and get upset at God. <laughs> I go, sums up. God's trying to create some endurance in me. God's trying to toughen me up, build my faith, right? How's yeah, that one? It also doesn't, it doesn't say that you will never feel that way. You will feel that way. But yes. then you will have, this is my own experience, you will have a calmness come over you. Yeah, yeah. And it will stop. All that will stop for a moment. Yes, and yes. And you'll realize, I don't need to go that direction. Yeah, yeah you, you catch it. That's so good, David. Yeah, yeah. just because we have the feeling doesn't mean we've, we've sinned, but it is also the threshold, and you don't want to cross it. How about this one, James chapter 1, verse 27? This is pure, undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself unstained by the world. That's some works that we do that demonstrate we are, you know, we're walking with him. So, okay. Anybody else on how this applies to us today? So a conclusion is formed. We who name the name of Jesus. Remember in John 15, Jesus said, if you do this one thing, you'll prove to be my disciples. What is it, John 15? Love one another. By this, they will know that you're my disciples, that you love them. And you lay down your... That, okay, so how you relate to people and treating them with respect and dignity and love uh, is one of the clearest indicators of the kind of depth and quality of relationship you have with Jesus and whether or not you have faith. Absolutely. Now, all right, I don't want to leave anybody uh, in a position where there's confusion or, or anything misunderstanding. What do you do with people that are abusive uh, and can cause damage? Does that mean you just take the beating? No. No. Uh-uh. 
Now, let's prove that. Were the Pharisees abusive? Absolutely. Could Jesus go toe-to-toe with them? He, he did. He called them what they were. He, he, he said, you're a bunch of snakes. <laughs> now, by the way, in Jewish culture, that's one of the worst things you can say to another human. You're a snake. What does that sound like? Oh, it reminds me of Genesis chapter 3. It's like saying, you're satanic. Ooh. Jesus could go toe-to-toe. He was not afraid to confront it. He could smack the hornet's nest. He didn't just lay back there and, oh, take the beating, say, say bad things about me. I can't fight back because that's not right. Oh, oh no, I'm being abused. No, he never did any of that stuff. The only time he did that is when it was the right time and it was about dying for the sins of the world. But when it was in the normal workaday time with the disciples for three years, he wouldn't do it. Yes. 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 Yeah. So, question: Did Jesus know how to stay with me? This is good. Did Jesus know how to define and enforce boundary? And if so, how? Oh, I like that, Tony. That's called Christ esteem right there, isn't it? Yeah. Only defined by the Father. Only defined by the Father. That's good. Okay, what else did he do that, that demonstrates he knew how to define boundary and enforce boundary? Did he ever attack anybody? Sure. That's a boundary. That's an action. Did he protect people who were being attacked who shouldn't have been? Yes. You know. So Jesus knew who to fight against and he knew how to, who to fight for. There's a boundary defined and enforced. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So when you read Matthew 5 and what he's saying... Um, he is alluding to, in all likelihood, Amy, and I say this with caution, um, in a Roman environment where there was military presence around Judea and in Jerusalem. Okay, and according to Roman law, a Roman soldier carrying, I don't know if you know what a Roman soldier, they're, when they're outfitted, Galen, what they've got, the gear, it's like ridiculous amounts of gear. And, and we're not talking about a Kevlar vest that doesn't weigh very much or that you know all this kind of really high-tech gear no their their shields are wooden they're covered in metal or leather they're soaked in water the shield alone is ridiculously heavy okay and because of that an outfitted soldier according to roman law could conscript anybody to carry the gear for them and so jesus is saying if a roman soldier comes up to you and says hey you connor the guy with the beard Come on, carry my backpack. You're obligated to carry it for one mile, according to Roman law. And what did Jesus say to do? How many miles do you carry it? Two. Go two. The first mile, you have no Christian testimony. 
It's the second mile that now you're a follower of Jesus. Now you've got something to talk about. Make sense? Because the soldier is going to say, all right, drop it. You're done. Go back. But the guy goes, nah, I, I, I kind of want to hang out with you. Can I carry it tomorrow and talk to you? Ooh. Okay, so it, that's the cheek. If you get popped in the cheek by a soldier, you better turn the other one. Because if you fight back, the sword comes out. Know when, it, when it's time to be a peacemaker, be a peacemaker. Don't ask for a fight. That's what he said. It does not mean take abuse. It has nothing to do with that. You don't take abuse. You don't do that. Sure. Okay. Man, it's been good. Anybody else? Yes, Phyllis? Phyllis, that's really brilliant, what you just said. Let me tell you why. You know, when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, and if you're a prophet, this is what I want you to do. He says that if you're a mercy, I want you, it, it says, the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives, give generously, the one who's in leadership with diligence, hang in there. And the one who shows mercy, it says, with cheerfulness. That's really odd that a merciful person is supposed to be skilled in being cheerful. Okay, it appears to be a contradiction. But if we understand the, the mind of Paul, we realize the brilliance that a merciful person is not the one that says, give me a Kleenex too. Let's both cry. Oh, you know, and that's mercy. We all cry. Where's the Kleenex? The Christian with the gift of mercy might be the one that says, you need to put the Kleenex down. This life on earth is just a speck. And you've got eternity coming. Let's focus on our reasons to have joy. That's the spiritual gift of mercy. And you just described that. Thank you, Phyllis. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. By the way, is there a time to cry with each other? Absolutely. There's a time to cry. There's a time to laugh. Sure. That's so good, Phyllis. Thank you. Anybody else? I want to say something. Sure. I, I have a faith that I love the Lord. I deal with things. And I also have works. And I can't help but Yeah. 
mean, it's yeah. not even his little stronghold yeah. that I'm trying to overcome. So is he really, I come to, I come to Bible study in church and just catch nuggets that can help me get through my own struggles. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. do I go to heaven or hell come I got struggles going on? What do you, those struggles humble me. It it always brings back to remembrance of the scripture. Yes. Yes. Uh, Tony, did Jacob remember Jacob who became Israel in the twelve tribes? Did he walk with a limp? Why? Christchurch answer, why did Jacob walk with a limp? He fought against God, right? And why did God touch the socket and create so much scarring that he had a limp? Amy? Little reminder? Yeah, so, so Tony, I think your struggles are a reminder. Stay humble. Don't make the same mistake twice. <laughs> First time, it's a mistake. What's the second time? On purpose. There's a difference. First time's a mistake. Second time's on purpose. You know, don't do, don't do stuff on purpose. And live out your faith. So if a man makes a mistake and he sins, what, do, what does a man do? He's a Christian. What does he do? Repent. He repents. He asks forgiveness. Yeah. And how many times? <sighs> it never stops, you know. Yeah, it never stops. Yeah. So interesting story. I've known people... Tony, who um, have uh, personalities, they're just, they're just hard to get along with. And they get upset, and it's almost like their emotions are like a grenade. And they get upset, and they pull the pin, and they're angry, and they throw the grenade, and they blow the house up. <laughs> Rage. And then everybody's upset, and then they go, what? What, what did I do? And they go, what, what you did? You did so-and-so. And they go, oh... I'm sorry. Okay. We accept your apology. The next day, they get upset. Pull the pin on the grenade, throw the grenade of rage, blow the house up, and there's shrapnel everywhere and splintered people. And then they're upset, and then they go, what's the matter? Why are you ignoring me? And then you tell them, and they go, oh, I am so sorry. I apologize. And then the next day, another grenade, and it goes on and on and on. What happens to that person's family? They're saying, bye-bye. We're not going to live with the grenades going off every day in our house. So this is where faith of that works. You know? And just because we ask forgiveness doesn't mean everything's okay. You know? If we ask forgiveness and yet repeat the bad behavior, even though we can be forgiven in God's that way, but it also can destroy human relationship. Yep. So you can be born again, be saved, and then process, but you can also do a lot of damage in human relationship. So Christ, what's the answer? What do you do? Phyllis? Repent to God and be trying not to do it again. Yeah, yeah. It's also amazing how God has put someone in your life to, with mercy, confront you with it. Yeah. In a way that's personal attack. But in a way of more or less, an, 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 I can say an amazing sternness will set you aside. It's, and it's all between you and that person. Yeah. And God will speak through that person. And yeah. 
Yeah. Until you get home with what it is. Okay, so... It so, doesn't cure it right off. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, because I've had that done with me, and yeah. it maybe stops and evaluate yeah. right there. Yeah. By the way, it doesn't matter what the sin issue is. It doesn't matter, but let's just say it's throwing grenades. Um, if, if that's the problem and Satan's wanting to bring that man or that woman down and really destroy their lives, what is Satan going to try to do? If, if, he, if Satan can get this one thing accomplished, ah, he's got them. Isolate them. Isolate them. Isolate them. Yeah, because if you get inside church, Tony, you're here. I'm here. We're all here. If we stay in community and we have these conversations about, you know, it's really good to not throw grenades. That's really a good thing to do. <laughs> then we create accountability. We create some encouragement. We show some mercy. We show encouragement. And by George, we're not throwing as many grenades, right? And also you have like a regen, so you can find out. That's regen, about addiction, right? So, but if you get alone, you get isolated, you get scared, you get desperate between your ears, and all of a sudden throwing grenades makes a whole lot of sense. And then you throw a grenade and it ends up making you very, very lonely. And it can be, it doesn't matter what it is, Jack Daniels, drugs, fentanyl, it doesn't matter what it is. Smoking cigars and robbing banks. I don't know, whatever it is, whatever your vice is, whatever the challenge is. Um, Faith without works is dead. It really is. Yeah. Now that's post-conversion. And pre-conversion is we're saved by grace through faith, no exception. Yeah. So, so Tony, we need each other. Got to stay close. Got to stay in the band of brothers, you know. Uh, how many times have you seen an athlete, you know, the athletes, uh, they're behind so many minutes uh, in the game, and the captain of the team, what does he do with the players? So, Come on, guys. This is it. You might grab a face mask and say, look, the ball's going to you, buddy. And, and it's just this moment of we've got to be a team. That's the idea. We need each other. Yeah, that's really what it is. Um, and we quote scripture and we pray. We stay faithful. It's good. That's why we need to do church, you know. I saw a meme. Someone said, virtual church is like watching a digital fireplace on your computer screen. You know, looks real pretty. But if you want to see a fireplace, come to my house and see what my number 92 buck stove is like when it's sitting on 1,200 degrees and it's 20 degrees outside. Oh, it is awesome. And then get some coffee and gave them some Pop-Tarts because we all know they're really good for you. And uh, man, that's high living. So, all right. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been good tonight. Okay, so Paul, again... What's interesting, this, by the way, is Paul's corrective to a church that's really screwed up. When you read 1 Corinthians 1 to 10, it is a laundry list of how not to do church. Don't do church this way. And when he gets to chapter 11, he ties it off with some more junk on the laundry list. And then it gets to this spot and he goes, guys, this is why we do church. This is why we gather right here. And he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed by Judas, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you.
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. Dear, let me pray and we'll take uh, the bread and the cup. Father, thank you that you give us such radical mercy at your table and you want us in turn to show radical mercy to each other, to our brothers and sisters. Abba, Father, help us to demonstrate that our works have faith behind them and that our faith has works out front and we're not hypocrites. Uh, Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.